Master Hakuin's chant and praise of Zazen. From the very beginning, all beings are Buddha. Like water and ice, without water no ice, outside us no Buddhas. How near the truth, yet how far we seek. Like one in water, crying, I thirst. Like a child of rich birth, wandering poor on this earth, we endlessly circle the six worlds. The cause of our sorrow is eager delusion. From dark path to dark path, we wandered in darkness. How can we be free from birth and death? The gateway to freedom is Zazen Samadhi. Beyond exaltation, be all raises the pure Mahayana. Upholding the precepts, repentance and giving, the countless good deeds and the way of right living all come from Zazen. Thus one true Samadhi extinguishes evil. It purifies karma, dissolving instructions. Then where are the dark tasks to lead us astray? The pure lotus land is not far away. Hearing this truth, heart humble and grateful, to praise and embrace it, to practice its wisdom, brings unending blessings, brings mountains of merit. And when we turn inward and prove our self-nature, that true self is no self, our own self is no self, we go beyond ego and past clever words. Then the gate to the oneness of cause and effect is thrown open. Not two and not three, straight ahead runs away. Our form now being no form, and going and returning we never leave home. Our thought now being no thought, our dancing and songs are the voice of the Dharma. How vast is the heaven of boundless samadhi. How bright and transparent the true night of wisdom. What is there outside us? What is there we lack? Nirvana is openly shown to our eyes. This earth where we stand is the pure lotus land, and this very body, the body of Buddha. Today is the fifth day of our winter seven-day session, uh, 4th of August 2021, and we're going to continue to read from Not I, Not Other Than I, The Life and Teachings and Rough and Teachings of Russell Williams, edited by Steve Taylor. left off with uh, Williams talking about um, feeling. It's good to learn to allow feeling to take place in the sense of being conscious rather than demanding to see or know something. If you just look at a seemingly blank wall, a blank wall is what you see. But if you quietly gaze at it without anything in mind, you'll see a lot of little impressions in the wall which you never knew existed. When you are just conscious, 
it will show itself to you, as other things will show their nature to you. If you demand something, then you'll only get what you demand, and it won't be what is already there. If you truly give your full attention, and I mean full attention to another person, if only for a second or so, without any thought at all, you'll find you give yourself to that person. There is only that person and he or she will blossom in the, that moment through your attention. In seeing, there is only that which is seen. So if you are without concepts or ideas, you see things truly for what they are. This pure attention is what um, we're working to work towards when we um, take up a koan. Um, to just look directly without any um, expectations in the mind or uh, demands, as he puts it here. When somebody um, throws in a, a, a statement, sort of a question, it's almost as if suffering is a result of the conflict between thought and feeling. And he replies, It is. Thought means moving away from being truly conscious of things, moving away into ideas, into separation. It doesn't work. Uh, of course there are places that where this it does work, but he's talking about in in terms of our spiritual practice. It's limited in its efficacy. This is why a person who lives in empathy will pick up other people's feelings very easily, their troubles as well as their joys, and experience precisely what they're going through, not necessarily their thoughts and not necessarily wholly their emotions, but they will come to know them as people. In that way, you come to understand other people and accept them for what they are. We'll be skipping around a bit, just picking out the, the pieces that are relevant to our practice here. Emotions may arise. The body may change its chemistry. It may heat up or cool down. But does that affect me? Have you ever experienced anger building up until you could feel that you could murder somebody and yet you're quietly sitting there thinking... What the hell is going on here? It's not you. It's a conditioned happening. Conditioned happening becomes identified as a so-called self, which isn't there. We think that because this is happening, there must be somebody doing it, a self, an ego, a burden. When we realize that consciousness is what we are, all of this can just be let go and it will die out. It doesn't lead anywhere, so we can just let it go. Then we become more peaceful, because peace is the nature of consciousness. It never gets upset. It just reveals facets of itself to itself and sees them as conditioning. And again somebody asks, 
Does the conditioning have deep roots? It starts with an identification with our physical existence. We become aware of these things as we progress. The trouble is we try to understand them and you can't. You try to put it into verbal understanding and it won't fit. Forget the understanding. Just know. This is the way things are. Just accept that. In other words, accept what is ever, ever is before us, even though it's the result of conditioning, in a certain sense, uh, insubstantial. It is a question of seeing a paradox, putting the two sides of the paradox together as one and accepting both, not in opposition, but as complementary. In a paradoxical situation, both left and right are equally right on their own level, but that which sees it is in the middle and is neither one nor the other. It does not take sides anymore, for it can accept both. Um, John Dido Laurie, um, the teacher who um, used to come to New Zealand regularly, has uh, now passed on um, from Zen Mount Monastery, he used to say, or I heard him say more than once, there are no paradoxes in nature, only in our thinking. It's, it's our, the difficulty we have in, in getting our mind around contradictions, but there are, they're not an actual contradiction in nature. They are. And, and we can just accept them as they are. A strange thing about being in the physical body is that its most important aspect is blood. Without blood, the body cannot maintain itself. But what is it that the blood carries around in its services to the body? Oxygen. So in fact, actual fact, gas in a liquidified form is being carried around the body. And is not gas closest to emptiness? This body is just a gas bag. How could it not know the emptiness, since it is filled with gas and with space? They say the body is almost entirely made up of water. And what is water but H2O, two gases? And of course, all atoms are almost entirely space. And um, to small enough particles, we, we human beings are completely permeable. In fact, there are neutrinos streaming through us unobstructed right now millions of them so the body is something and nothing why do we place such importance on it we don't strictly speaking rather we place importance on the activities that take place within it which is a different thing altogether the living aspect is not physical at all it's the interplay between this and other things that is important. If I am an interplay with that tree or that house or that chimney pot over there, am I here or over there? Am I here in my consciousness or over there in your consciousness? It's an intriguing question because there is an element of yes and no. It is and it isn't. An example of, of a paradox that's... Uh, 
nature is perfectly fine with, but we struggle with at times. We want things to be black and white. Does a dog have the Buddha nature or not? So what can we really be sure about? Not a lot. And if we just accept it as it appears, there is no problem. But if we try to analyze it, we fall into difficulties. So why not just accept it? This is one of those little aspects of experience that only happen for a moment. You cannot deny your experience because it is your reality. So be careful about what you experience. To just accept things as they appear. To uh, experience our own uh, uh, mind in a uh, phenomenological way as we experience it. Another, another paradox is one from the Lankavatara Sutra. Things are not what they appear to be, nor are they otherwise. You cannot deny your experience because that is your reality. So be careful what you experience. It is your only truth. We talk in the Buddhism of the Alaya Vijnana, which is this um, storehouse consciousness um, in and beyond each of us. And um, said to literally store as seeds, everything that we expose our minds to. So that's why it becomes important to be careful about what we expose ourselves to. I didn't have access to the actual statistic, but um, it's some staggering number of depictions of um, violence that our children see even before they reach school age, uh, if they watch television. It's probably even more now with the internet, but probably completely uncountable. But all of that, all those images going into our Alaya Vijnana. Words are not true, they can be disproved, but you cannot disprove experience any more than you can prove it to be true. It does not go away because you cannot stop the world. You can try to stop the world so that you can understand it, but you find that it's already moving on. Or as the Greek um, philosopher Heraclitus said, you can't step twice into the same river. Everything's in constant motion, in, in flux. Or in the Diamond Sutra. Past mind is ungraspable. Future mind is ungraspable. Present mind is ungraspable. 
The next uh, section is headed up, Who am I? The question says, When I try to observe what and who I am, it's as, as if there are different levels. There are thoughts on a superficial level and concepts of who I think I am from my past. Williams replies, Yes, and you can sense that these are not the real you. Why don't you believe that? It's telling you the truth. You are not a self. Um, when working on this, this question, who am I, or uh, what it, it, uh, is, it is um, a subset of, which is the, perhaps the bigger question of what am I, um, it can be helpful to um, identify um, what we are not, to, to rule it out, to get down to the sort of the, the bottom of our not knowing. Um, Martine Batchelor, in, in a, a short article she wrote for a Tricycle magazine, on the koan, what is this, um, says that her own teacher, Master Kusan, great Korean master, um, used to try to help his students by pointing out, um, a, a listing many of the things that um, this is not. Um, He's, she says, he used to try to help us by pointing out that the answer to the question was not an object because you could not describe it as long or short, this color or that color. It was not empty space either because empty space cannot speak. It was not the Buddha because you have not yet awakened to your Buddha nature. And it was not the master of the body, the source of consciousness or any other designation because those are mere words and not the actual experience of it. So you are left with questioning. You ask, what is this? Because you do not know. This is, a, I think, a helpful way of, of understanding uh, our questioning. We, we ask, what is this? Or what is Mu? Because we don't know. Bachelor goes on to, on to say that we're not speculating with our mind. Rather, um, we, we may have to do some speculating to kind of exhaust it, to get beyond it. But to understand that what we're really trying to do is to become one with the question. It's, it's completely different from trying to work it out. She says, the most important part of the question is not the meaning of the words themselves, but the question mark. We are asking unconditionally, what is this? Asking unconditionally in the sense we're, of, we're not saying, you know, I need the answer by 5 p.m. In fact, without even, even looking for an answer in any sort of conventional way that we understand answer <coughs> without expecting an, an answer it's it's more it's it's at the existential level really that we're asking the question what what is this who am i
just as the question comes from the deepest part of us, the, the um, resolving of this must be at the same kind of deep place. She says, we're questioning for questioning's sake. This is a practice of questioning, not of answering. We're trying to develop a sensation of openness, of wonderment. As we throw out the question, what is this, we are opening ourselves to the moment. There is no place we can rest. We are letting go of our need for knowledge and security, and our body and mind themselves become the question. One of the, the values and beauties of, of koans when we work on them is that they brighten the mind. They, they help us to cultivate the, mind, the, the mind's openness and curiosity, perplexity even. Because we, we long to resolve the questions we have about ourselves and about our world. But to enter into this place it does involve, as Bachelor says, our need, our letting go of our need for knowledge and security. Uh, the, the, the doubt mass, which is referred to in, in Koan work, this, this ball of um, perplexity that can arise, it's not comfortable. It's not a comfortable <coughs> place to be. It's not a relaxing place to be. Just a little bit more on this before we go back to Russell Williams. You are giving yourself over entirely to the question. It's like diving into a pool. The whole body is engaged in the act, and the whole body and mind are refreshed. You are trying to develop a sensation of questioning and an inquiry that brings about a sense of bewilderment you feel when you have lost something. You are going somewhere. You put your hand in your pocket to grab your car keys. They're not there. You check this corner and that corner of the pocket again and again, and there is nothing. For a moment before you try to remember where you've left them, you're totally perplexed. You have no idea what might have happened. This is very similar to the sensation you're trying to develop in Zen questioning. In other words, um, intense in questioning. Concentration and inquiry are brought together with this technique. Concentration is developed as you come back again and again and again to the words of the question, back to the present moment. The question is the anchor of your meditation, the fixed point. By cultivating concentration, you allow for a certain calmness and spaciousness to develop. The process of inquiry is vivid because you are not repeating the words like a mantra. The words themselves are not sacred, nor do they have any special resonance. They are just the diving board from which you dive into the pool of questioning. By repeatedly questioning with the energy and interest of someone who has just discovered she has lost something, you evoke a brightness in your whole being. 
This question gives you energy because there is no place to rest. And it allows for more possibilities and less certainty. It is a kind of wonderment similar to a young child's when he discovers the marvels in the the world around him. Very immediate, not lost in the future or the past. This practice is just being with the moment and looking deeply, asking what is this, and being open to this as it happens to be. Whatever arises, however paradoxical the situation may be, however confusing, to apply our question right there. It's it's such a um, rich path that this takes us on. Williams continues. The problem is that we look at at things with duality rather than singularly. In other words, with the discriminating intellect. If you give full attention to any one aspect, there is only that. If you give full attention to me, where does yourself go? You know this now because there is only this. If I give you attention, there is only you and not me. If the mind is full of that, there is no me looking. That is true experience. It is possible that consciousness and experience exist together. And other than that, there is nothing. Sorry, that was a question. Is it possible that consciousness and experience exist together and that other than that, there is nothing? And somebody comments, this fits with the speculation that things must be as they are now. He replies, when you say as they are now, the now has already gone. You stand still and everything passes you by, or perhaps everything is stationary and you pass it by. It's like a vehicle heading down the road at whatever speed you like, but there is always the stationary aspect of the tyre in contact with the road, without which the car would be skidding but it's so rapid that you don't notice. There's always that still moment, the moment of contact, of experience, the now. If you can live in that now, you have no problems, no maybes, no maybe nots, only now. I think it was T.S. Eliot said, the still point of the turning world.
another section now, this one called Death and Birth. The questioner says, I feel as if I'm evolving gradually towards a more spiritual state, but everybody I know about who has become enlightened or realized seems to have had a sudden, sudden dramatic experience, some kind of crisis. Do you think that is always the case? He replies, I wouldn't say that necessarily. It may appear that way, but generally speaking, people have had experiences in previous lives which have brought them to this point. Even in this life, there's usually a period when they have concentrated intensely for a long period of time. In my own case, there were three years, day and night, looking after animals. A whole mindful process for a long period. Ramana Mahashi had a few years. He had a glimpse when he tried to experience death. I think he was in his teens when that occurred. But it, but it still took another ten years. He was about 27 when he finally became awakened. It's not just sudden. The previous lives make a difference. A lot of work takes place in the past before we come into this lifetime. In my case, I knew this was my last time around. I wasn't even looking for enlightenment this time around, which seems to be the right way when I look back on it. Everybody will recall that that um, his... Um, shift, as he called it, was was came out of his um, three years of, of working to intimately know horses, to know their minds. So, horse mindfulness. It's just, um, it's just an illustration of um, the myriad Dharma gates through which we can pass to realization. The only thing you can do to prepare the way is to clear the mind. It's no good trying to think and understand it. It won't work. What you have to do is to train yourself to be more fully aware of what you're doing. That's why I instruct people to put their mind in their hands and be consciously aware. Let your hands tell you what you want to do rather than the other way around. Do this and your mind will gen gradually clear. This is what we try to um, prov um, sort of set the scene for in, in Sishin, that we we structure things, we give instructions on the jobs that are simple enough that uh, most people in the Sishin can just let their hands do the work. There may be a little bit of planning necessary, but most of the planning and and is done either beforehand or by um, a handful of people. Uh, in the actual session, they take on the burden of that um, in order to allow uh, everyone else to just let their hands do the work. Of course, it, it does rely on on people um, doing what's asked of them. Then everything fits together. Um, it's, or a lot of the effort has to go in beforehand to get all those those pieces of session to work as a as a well-oiled machine, but it's all 
um, geared towards uh, being able to to um, drop the discriminating mind as much as possible. Do this and your mind will gradually clear. And when you reach the stage where you virtually have a clear mind, there is the chance of something arising. It's within you already. It's your own nature in the first place. The part that we, we can work on ourselves so that this, this occurrence happens is just to be ready. To be receptive, and to be receptive is to be empty. When you reach the stage where you virtually have a clear mind, there's a chance of something arising. It's within you already. It's your own nature in the first place. As long as you're not concerned about where you're going, just what you're doing now, now is in a as in a physical feeling rather than a mental, you'll just find that awareness will take you to deeper levels, much more subtle areas where you can observe your emotions without getting involved, when you can see the nature of mind, how concepts are formed and how they disappear. Emptiness is the key, the clear, empty mind. Whatever you observe becomes the whole content of the mind. You gain access into a totally new dimension from which all these things arise. In Buddhist terms, this is the unborn, uncreated, unmanifest, which is the essence of everything. There was a um, great uh, Japanese master, Banke, who um, it was the, the, the core of his teaching was the teaching of the unborn Buddha mind unborn and undying. When we, when we access this, this unborn Buddha mind, he says, that we can observe the whole world arising, a very interesting process. We can see the falsity and the delusory duality in it and the manifestations of different forms of the same thing. And somebody comments then, uh, and yet we are so afraid of losing this form, in other words, the body. It seems to be part of being human to be afraid of death. Williams replies, there's nothing to be afraid of. It's just like going into the next room. This, that reminds me a little of, of what um, Anne Aiken, uh, Robert Aiken Roshi's uh, wife said when she was on her deathbed. She said it was going to be like um, getting on a bus and leaving. The manner of dying may be painful, or perhaps people afraid of losing the idea of self. They may think it means annihilation. I sometimes wonder if it's not fear of death 
but fear of birth, which is the problem. Birth is a very traumatic experience, as I remember myself. An innate memory may be there that death leads to birth, which creates fear. It's interesting, there's actually Tibetan texts which describe in great detail all the um, uh, experiences that the uh, fetus goes through uh, while in gestation. And it's, it's certainly, if you read that, <laughs> you may decide you don't want to be reborn. The strange thing is that these feelings are felt and known without any thought whatsoever. In relation to birth, there is a consciousness that dawns in a dark, warm place, a place that is caressing, with the mother's, mother's blood flow and pulse. This is absolute comfort. But then, for no apparent reason, there is a pressure squeezing you in. Imagine a boa constrictor trying to constrict you, turning you around and upside down and eventually squeezing you through a narrow tube, like a one-foot-sized ball being pushed through a six-inch pipe. You've been breathing like a fish with gills and liquid, and you come out all wet into a cold atmosphere after being immersed in warm water. Suddenly there's light after dark. After muffled noise, somebody suddenly drops something onto a tin plate, making a loud clang, and somebody grabs you by the feet and yanks you up and pulls the liquid out of you so that you breathe cold air into a warm lung, like breathing in cold air first thing in the morning. And all of this at the same time. It's painful. The whole process of birth is pain. The womb is completely safe, but out here you are totally exposed in a hostile world. It may change our, uh, our way of thinking about it if we imagine when, when we receive a newborn that it's just been through some pretty serious traumatic experience. Needs us to wrap it with, with um, our love and comfort at that point. So I wonder if that is part of the fear of death, that it leads to rebirth. But of course this memory is innate. People don't really know it consciously. It is in the deeper levels of consciousness that they know it. Death is a process of each of the senses gently and quietly closing down. It depends on the person, how spiritually developed they are, but in perhaps a few days they're in another dimension. The average person shouldn't have any great difficulty though less developed people may have some. And of course there's the cultural uh, elements too, that, that um, in, in our culture there's a great deal of fear of death, that we're in, in other cultures it may be more acceptable and seen as part of life, which of course it is. So he says that that um, the average person shouldn't have any great difficulty. My only my own experience from um, being a hospice volunteer for a few years and being called um, on occasion to uh, people's deathbeds is that people do struggle a lot. It's not always peaceful. 
says, Once I was aroused at 3 a.m. because a person was dying in a terrible way. I got dressed and went into their bedroom, lit a candle, and it was like being in hell. She was absolutely tormented within and without. On the surface, she was a perfectly ordinary person, but she had a weak mind and had attractive negative force, had attracted negative forces, primeval forces, which are always looking for a point of entry into the physical world. world. It took me two hours to clear it out, and finally she died in a more stable state. Um, one of the one of the aspects of this book is that it has quite a lot of references to sort of the, the supernatural and to spirits and, and beings, entities beyond the human, most of which we haven't been reading because it doesn't really relate very much to our practice, but um, get a sense of, of um, Russell Will Williams wor working with um, uh, non-human forces in his, in his uh, practice as here. Generally speaking, though, you don't need to worry about it. Those who are spiritually advanced are automatically protected. Protected because of our awareness and because of having, in a sense, rehearsed death and, and birth many times in our practice. You know, in some ways, uh, every single session is a, is a rehearsal for death. How many little deaths do we die uh, in a, in a session? How much do we uh, renounce if only for these seven days? And uh, how much do we um, face ourselves in, in session? All this, all this will stand us in very good stead when we're, when we're on our actual deathbeds. Next section is called um, Freedom Through Loving Kindness. You are not the conditions that make you do things. So much in this one sentence. You are not the conditions that make you do things. So many, so many forces go into m making up our um, our experience of life, and so often we we take it personally. We we get caught up in the the um, stories of our of our our life story of I, me, and mine. And we, we f lose sight of how much um, impersonal conditions shape us, shape our thoughts. Things, um, ideas and, and uh, beliefs in, in the society as a whole. And of course, um, all that we comes down to us through our parents. There's a, a 
psychologist. His name is is um, Steve Bidoff. He's Australian, and um, the book is called Fully Human: A New Way of Using Your Mind. And um, one of the, the sort of theories he puts forward is that um, uh, society is so dysfunctional in many ways because of um, intergenerational trauma that that um, is passed down um, from parents to children. He's and, and he's talking about this intergenerational trauma, and he says. Um, we have to remember just what a nightmare the 20th century was, especially the first half. Over a hundred million killed in two world wars, and another hundred in genocides. The Great Depression, refugee flows in hundreds of millions, and the overall shift from rural community to urban living, with the nightmare of the Industrial Revolution lying in between. What we see now in East Asia, child workers sleeping beneath their factory tables at night, people dying of preventable diseases in horrendous slums, that was our history too, just a century ago. The Grenfell Tower disaster showed that it could so easily return. Look into your family history and it's unlikely that you have escaped this. As I was writing this chapter, I met with an old friend, a kindly and much-respected minister in a peaceful Tasmanian country town. But he was born in London in 1935, and he and his mother were bombed out of their home three times before he was eight years old. His soldier father was absent for five years, then was barely emotionally available ever after. The surgeon who operated on me when I became unwell a couple of years ago was a Vietnamese boat person who made a nightmare journey to safety at the age of five. Our family dentist fled the Czech uprising as a teenage boy. My neighbour, a warm and caring dad married to an Australian wife, spent six despairing years in a desert concentration camp as a young man, courtesy of the Australian government. His health was seriously and permanently damaged. You will probably know people who survived conflict in Iran or Iraq, Northern Ireland, the Falklands or Afghanistan, or peacekeeping in Kosovo or East Timor. Nobody, it seems, has a remotely straightforward family background. Traumatized people, and that means almost all of us today, may not function well as parents or providers. Overwhelmed by this by stress, they may become violent, withdrawn, abusive, substance abusing, or suicidal. If nobody intervenes, the harms, harms just echo on and on. That is why we simply must intervene. Um, he talked, he's talking as a, I guess, as a therapist in terms of how to intervene. But it it, it um, reminds me of that saying. Um, uh, be kind, because everyone you encounter is fighting a hard battle. We we have, we do have these these um, skeletons in our closets. It's probably fair to say that no that no society is without them.
colonization is is uh, one that we have, are still coming to face here in New Zealand, for instance. He also lists um, different aspects of of modern modern life, sort of normal normal aspects of modern life that um, could be seen as as traumatic. Long working hours for parents and the unaffordability of taking time off work to just to care for each other. Um, increasing use of long daycare for younger and younger children. The increasing pressure in schools with testing and competition even from an early age. Um, exposure to relentless media in our living spaces at home, the kind of invasion that we allow there. Urban environments with little access to nature, since we've, we've been built to, to have that access. Very stressed lives, leading to relationship collapse and family breakdown. And missing, in terms of the presence of nature, the missing of that, including rhythms of light and dark, the company of animals, being around plants and working outdoors, using our bodies, having time to dream. So, um, all of this is, is stuff that we... Um, have to contend with, and which is a part of the, the the greater kind of forces of our of our society. But there's there's also hope in in um, the statement of of Williams. You are not the conditions that make you do things. Gradually you begin to see those as separate from you. You begin to lose the egoistic aspect of self and to realize the reality of a different kind of self which is unselfish and part of a whole. Consciousness can only communicate on one level, in feeling. It doesn't know anything else. It doesn't think. It has no organ for thinking. Consciousness is an aspect of the living condition itself, which all these things are wrapped around. Um, actually, I would disagree with with this, because we can't really we can't really say that our discriminating intellect is somehow um, separate from consciousness. It's actually it arises out of consciousness, as we were talking before. It's a kind of body. Um, byproduct of um, our encounter with um, experience, our experiences. I think he goes a little bit far here. Um, in fact, we, um, we in Buddhism we count um, the discriminating mind as um, the sixth sense, along with the ordinary senses.
well, maybe the best thing is, because uh, this next bit won't, will take a little bit of time, so um, we'll stop here and recite the four vows. without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the great way of Buddha, I vow to attain all beings without number, I vow to liberate endless blind passions, I vow to uproot dharma gates beyond measure, I vow to penetrate the Blind passions, I vow to uproot Dharma gates beyond measure. I vow to penetrate the great way of.